Welcome to Saving Faith. I'm Eric Sintel, and in this episode, I'm interviewing Ron Greer. Have you ever talked to someone, and after talking to them, or maybe while talking to them, you have uh, just this incredible warm and fuzzy feeling? <laughs> Ron Greer created that feeling for me. I mean, this was just a delightful conversation in so many ways. Um, and just the what he has to say and his manner in saying it just... I mean, my goodness, it just really did uh, leave me just feeling this glow uh, toward the end of the conversation that persisted afterward as well. Ron Greer is the director of the Pastoral Counseling Service at Peachtree Road United Methodist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, and he's been serving in this ministry for 40 years. He's an ordained United Methodist minister, um, a fellow of the American Association of Pastoral Counselors, and a clinical fellow of the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. He's written four books, um, most recently, and the one that uh, we're talking about, uh, The Quiet House. Um, And The Quiet House is his reflection on his grief and mourning process after the passing of his wife. Um, He also wrote his first book about him and his wife's uh, journey through grief and and toward healing after the death of their young two-year-old son in a car accident. Um, And we talk about both of those experiences, and we talk also about how uh, we can help others through their uh, journey of grief and mourning. We talk a little bit about the difference between grief and mourning. We talk about, you know, ways to be present for people who are mourning. Um, This is just a a really terrific conversation. Um, Let me read a little bit about... um, the book and the description of it. Um, Greer hopes to expand our thinking on the healing importance of engaging our mourning of any significant death. Grief is the painful emotional reaction to loss, he writes. It is not an option. Mourning, giving a voice to that pain, is, and it is wise to opt for it. Intentionally choosing to engage and express pain requires courage. And as we talk about in this conversation, um, it also leads to the healing that we need to have, uh, the emotional resurrection, as he calls it. Um, and so he bases a lot of this on, obviously, his own personal experience, but also, you know, 40 years as a pastoral counselor. Um, and he has, you know, not just the, um, you know, the Christian counseling angle, but judging from his um, professional memberships, you know, he has some real um training as a clinician, as a a counselor. So this is a terrific conversation for anyone um, who has dealt with a a loss, which means everyone. Without any further ado, let's get to talking with Ron Greer, author of The Quiet House. Well, Ron, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Um, I thought we might start by just telling our listeners about your uh, faith background and your work as a a pastoral counselor. Well, I am a lifelong uh, Methodist. Uh, I grew up in the Methodist church in a little town outside of Shreveport, Louisiana. Uh, Graduated from LSU, came to Candler School of Theology in Atlanta. And as I have often said, Eric, I got that Georgia red clay between my toes and liked it and decided to stay over here. So I've been here for, I love these many decades. I was for about six years a parish minister in the 70s and uh, loved it. The part, though, that I loved the most about it was the counseling. 
And so in the late 70s, early 80s, I was in, uh, I went back to graduate school in pastoral counseling and uh, finished there in the early 80s and went to the pastoral counseling, joined uh, my friend Larry Adams at the pastoral counseling service at Peachtree Road United Methodist there in the middle of Atlanta and have been there since 1982 uh, as a pastoral counselor. And that is, uh, I, uh, I found my ministry. I found the, the way I believe God has guided me and has called me. And that is in a one-to-one ministry. Uh, in um, recent years, the last uh, decade and a half or so, uh, I've expanded that in doing some writing. Uh, I've written a handful of books uh, on the issues that have come um, out of the, uh, the issues we talk about in counseling sessions. And uh, so that has expanded my ministry. And now I get to be on Eric's podcast. Uh, so the ministry continues uh, to to move into new ways, which I very much appreciate and enjoy. Excellent. Well, yeah, I'm glad to have you on here. Um, so, so in your book, um, Quiet House or The Quiet House, you know, you wrote this book um, in reflecting on your process of uh, grief and mourning after your wife passing away, um, and you distinguish between grief and mourning you know what is the difference between those two things that's what a great way to start eric uh because the two uh the two often emerged uh in in ways that that uh, uh that, that it's so helpful to understand the distinction the two are very related but they are very different grief is the ex- emotional experience Grief is that blow that we receive when we receive the news uh, of a loss, uh, of any loss, but obviously what is front and center is the loss of someone we dearly love. We receive that news and we are emotionally doubled over in pain. That's grief. Uh, Grief is not optional. Life is real and life will deal us blessings and life will deal us blows. That's grief. Mourning is what we choose to do with the grief. Grief is the emotional experience, and mourning is the expression of that emotion. Grief is not optional. Grief, that we have no choice in that. Grief is not optional. Mourning is, and it is so wise to opt for it. Because mourning is the working through of that emotion of grief so that we are not stuck with it so that we can process it and work it through and uh, come out on the other side of the valley of the shadow of death. It is, it is not a short trip. It is not a brief trip, but we can eventually come out of the other end of that valley, but that requires the mourning of the experience of grief. Great question, Eric. Yeah, well, thank you. And you talk about... Um in the book about honoring your grief in ways that are right for you. Um, and you also talk about to how you, in order to heal, we have to actively mourn um, and not just passively hurt. Um, and so I was wondering if you could maybe expand on some of those things for our listeners. You know, what does it mean to honor your grief in ways that are right for you? And what do you mean by actively mourning? Absolutely. Uh, let me begin with, with the, um, with saying that it is unfortunate 
that the the phrase the steps or stages of grief uh, was ever invented. And Elizabeth Kubler Ross is the one who who uh, who created the phrase, and she realized that it was a phrase that was used in ways that she never intended. People who experience the grief and are going through their mourning are so wanting clarity because the the experience is one that is just such an upheaval of emotion that they are wanting to get they're wanting some steps, and so they latched on to the five steps as, as being one, two, three, four, five, and I'm done. And of course, that's not what she meant. As Elizabeth Cooper Ross was later to write, this is not a linear process in any way, shape, or form. So it is, it is giving myself to the process. It is allowing myself to open up how I feel. I always find it useful, Eric, to, to go back to the, the origin of the word grief. It comes from the Latin gravis that literally translates heavy. Uh, it's, no, it's no surprise that gravis is also the, the same uh, root word for our English word gravity, because it means there is heavy. It, it means that there is weight involved. And that's what we resist in, in wanting to get through it as quickly as we can. And in getting through it quickly, what we often do is cheat ourselves out of the full experience of working through the grief via our mourning. I am, um, I always go back to that wonderful quote where there is deep grief, there was great love. And anytime I feel the depth of that grief and, and engage it with the mourning, then I know that how profound that relationship was in my life. But let me get specifically back to your question about that, the, the process of mourning. Anytime I experience any event that has an emotional component to it, I am infused with emotional input. It throws me off balance. It throws me to some degree into disequilibrium with the input. The way I write the ship, the way I get back in balance with the input is with output. When it comes to grief, uh, the phrase that I always go back to is, as I encourage people to express the, 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 the response to the input with output is, give it a voice. Cry it out, talk it out, write it out. Cry it out. There is no substitute for tears. Anytime those tears come, let them, and, and, and one has a private moment, let them flow. Talk it out. Oh, my goodness. This is where oh, our friends and fellow family members are absolutely invaluable to be able to process and talk it out. And we all have had the experience of feeling such distress, be it grief or any other powerful emotion, feeling such distress until we sit down and, and we someone says, how are you doing? You, are you okay? Well, to tell you the truth, I'm having a rough day. And they said, well, tell me about it. Good gracious, 15 minutes later, a transformation has happened. It is, it is, it is absolutely powerful. Um, Eric, as a, as a United Methodist pastor, you know what I'm talking about here when I reference Jesus saying where two or three are gathered, 
my spirit, I will be with you. Um, and, 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 and when, when I think of that kind of, of, of gathering, when, uh, when someone says, how are you doing? And they mean it. Oh, my word. It's transformational uh, because Christ's spirit is there, uh, is, is, is a part of that healing process. And that's where the, you know, the phrase I always use is slip off your sandals because that's sacred ground. That's, that's, uh, that's holy ground. So it allows us a chance to talk it out and then to cry it out, talk it out. And then the third way is to write it out. I've had countless people in, in, uh, in counseling sessions over the years to say, well, yeah, Ron, I know, I know what you're talking about. It's important about, uh, uh, you know, talking it out, but I don't want to wear out my friends. And to that, Eric, I have two responses. One is, uh, well, actually three responses. One is I respect that. I understand that you care about these people. Number two is I don't think you're going to wear them out. I think they experience this as an absolute honor that you are wanting to process it with them. And then uh, uh, number three is to the degree, though, that you're concerned about wearing them out with all these conversations that that are about a very similar topic, which is your grief, then uh, I want you to pull out a pad of paper or a spiral notebook and start journaling. Um, I did not grow up journaling. I did not journal until well into my adult life. And it can be a profound, when it comes to grief, especially, it can be a profoundly relieving experience. It's, 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 uh, it's stunning what a, a transformation can happen in terms of how someone feels if they sit down and write and write and write. Now, I always tell them, Eric, you're not writing for documentation. You are writing to get it out. You're writing to express it. Write it and shred it. You know, you, th th this is not for future reference. And for heaven's sakes, let me let me encourage all your listeners, do not even think about getting one of those fancy leather notebooks. Because anytime I write in a fancy, expensive leather notebook, I feel like I need to be saying something profound. <laughs> this is not for something profound. This is for something deeply, deeply personal. So you write it out and then and then toss it, burn it, shred it, keep it, whatever you want to do. But as I say, it's not for future reference, for documentation. It's for getting it expressed. Yeah, absolutely. I just know I love everything you're saying there. Um, you know, I, I started off doing this podcast for my church because my, my pastor at the time, you know, asked me if I would start doing it. And it was right before the pandemic started. And then the pandemic kind of threw gasoline on the on the fire and urgency you know put some urgency behind the podcast as an alternative when things were closed down mm -hmm. um, but my actually my day job is actually teaching writing at a university and so when you start oh, I didn't realize that yeah yeah and so when you start talking about writing I get excited and I agree wholeheartedly um you know there's something really powerful about just expressing your emotions and your your thoughts and feelings and writing especially when you're doing it just for yourself and don't even plan to keep it or present it or anything. Uh, Cause you can really be so honest and so vulnerable in that way. Um, yeah. And so if you want to go, uh, go ahead. Yeah, and, may, 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 I, may I make a comment on that Eric? Absolutely. Yeah. You, you, you just reminded me of something that is, is very important. One of the, and, and, and this is, is another way of expressing what you just said. I just want to, to amplify on it. What, 
is um, when it comes to journaling as opposed to talking, even you're ta if you're talking with your best friend, there is a filter that we all have when we're talking with anyone. And uh, when we are, are just out of consideration of who the person is, and, and I, you know they're going to keep it confidential, but there's just a built-in filter there. When we're journaling, there is no filter because we know we're going to, we know we're going to toss it. We know we're going to, we're going to shred it, whatever. Therefore, what we're wanting to do is to be, is to express ourselves as deeply and personally as we can because this is how healing happens. This is how we get through the valley. This is, is, is how we do it, is to express it, is to express where our heart is as deeply as we can. And that's one of the advantages that, uh, that writing it out as opposed to talking it out is, uh, has, has got a leg up because we are the only reader who's ever going to see it. Yeah. I, I'll have counselees say, yeah, I've been journaling about that. I'm going to bring my journal in next time. And I say, no, 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 no. Don't bring the journal in. Tell me about it. But, but I want the journal to be for your eyes only. And, and, and we do express it even more deeply when we journal it. And, and countless, and as a writer, you, you good gracious, you could easily finish this next sentence uh, for me. Um, as a, as a, uh, as we write, we discover things we didn't even realize we thought or felt. In fact, uh, I believe it was the writer Joan Didion that uh, that that said, and I'm going to paraphrase her. Uh, I'm coming close to quoting her, who said, "I don't even know what I think until I write it out." <laughs> but but there's is awareness about where we are, what we think, how we feel. That suddenly we realize, oh my gosh, I didn't even realize that that was what I was experiencing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you, you mentioned talking too about uh, why it's so emotionally healthy to express our grief and our, our mourning, uh, or to, I guess, to put it more precisely, uh, it's really emotionally healthy to express our grief through the active process of mourning, uh, you know, talking with people, journaling, um, maybe doing some other kind of artistic um, endeavor, you know, um, so could you talk a little bit about that relationship between uh, actively mourning and the emotional health? You know, what's happening oh, yeah. for, for people emotionally when they're doing that process? Let me, let me, uh, uh, let me begin this way. Um, the, I love the way this, this elderly lady once said it, as she said, um, I just figure when life gives you tribulations, the good Lord expects you to tribulate. <laughs> <laughs> my my far my far less delightful way of expressing the same thing is suppression brings depression. Mm. Expression brings emotional resurrection. Mm. Suppression brings depression. Countless times, I have um, in, in my counseling office, I have. Uh, been talking with someone who comes in because they're depressed and there are um, numerous reasons there are essentially five or six main uh, reasons that for depression but one of those is suppression or repression of emotions emotions that that uh, like grief being being one of the primary ones emotions that were never given a voice they they, they, they were never let out that and, and I will we'll talk with someone who comes in depressed and we'll go through the, 
their life story. We'll talk about the reasons they're depressed. And then I'll ask them, have you had a, a traumatic or event in your life? Have you had a powerful loss in your life? They'll say, oh, yes. And, and they will mention to me someone who was absolutely precious in their lives, someone who was just vital in their lives, a loved one, a family member, usually. And uh, I would say, oh, my goodness, tell me, tell me about, did you, did you mourn that? And then they will say, oh, yes, I hurt with that for years. And I said, okay, I very much respect you hurt with it, but did you mourn it? And what we find is that by the time they had left the, the, the cemetery, that their tears dried up and they had not really mourned since that day. And we will go back and look at that, at that loss in their lives, and they'll open it up and the tears, the emotions will simply flow. Be they had become depressed because they had repressed those emotions. Now, one day, Eric, it's not going to be today, but one day I'm going to come up with a classier metaphor than this. But my best metaphor, which no, I'm not, because I love the metaphor. My best metaphor goes back to my childhood uh, uh, kitchen, watching my mother cook. My mother had one of those those um, um, uh, uh, boilers that she would would put the beans in, and then would you know would put the lid on and would lock it shut. Would would, would lock it closed, and then she would boil the beans in there. And I don't know how long she cooked them, but, but, you know, it was locked in there. The, the lid wasn't budging. It was a pressure cooker and uh, it would cook in that pressure cooker. I don't know. It felt like three or four days. You could eat those beans with a straw. They were so tender. Yeah, exactly. Think of it this way. If we repress our emotions, it's like putting them in a pressure cooker. The only difference is there's no lock on our emotional pressure cooker. We put them in our emotional pressure cooker at the subconscious level. We put the lid on it, but we have to hold the lid on it. And so the pressure builds and builds at that subconscious level and it's building. So it takes more and more energy subconsciously to hold that lid on. Therefore, we don't feel the, the enthusiasm about doing things we enjoy. We don't have the energy. We don't have the creativity. We don't sleep well. Our diet is, is, is affected. All the symptoms of depression. We're listless because we are subconsciously holding the lid on that pressure cooker of that unmourned grief. Therefore, suppression brings depression. Expression brings a kind of emotional resurrection, a kind of, of, of new life. And, and you had mentioned earlier the, the phrase uh, that I have used about to learn to grieve your way, learn to find your way, your unique style of how you give it a voice via the tears, the words, uh, and, the, and the, the oral words and the writing. Find your way of doing it and then give it that expression intentionally. Give it that expression and keep your grief current. If you do, and, and, and by keeping your grief current in here, there's no problem with keeping it current. For people who are open to their mourning, there's no problem early on in those early weeks. Good gracious, they, they almost have no choice. But later on, they will have a choice. Uh, and I encourage people to choose to let those emotions out, to give them that voice. And if they will keep them current, 
what they will find over the months and years to come. There, there'll be three changes, but I'm really focused on the months following a, a major death. There are three changes that will happen. The, the tide, the waves of grief will come in less often. They will hit less powerfully and they will recede more quickly. All because one had mourned their grief, had given it that voice, and allowed themselves to heal. That's a really, really powerful uh, metaphor and explanation. And uh, it reminds me of, uh, of so many things. But, you know, one thing being, um, you know, I, I've heard many veterans talk about PTSD um, and almost all of them um, were able to overcome it or work through it by expressing what it was that had given them PTSD, you know, talking about their experiences with fellow veterans who could empathize and understand and, um, and often through do also doing some kind of artistic endeavor like writing or photography or art or, or anything. Um, you know, there's actually a, a fairly robust community of veteran writers now, um, you know, both professional authors and also writing workshops throughout the country where um, they try to, you know, encourage veterans to come and write about their experiences, either in, you know, nonfiction essays, you know, type memoir type writing, or to try to put their experiences into uh, a fictional narrative. Or, mm -hmm. um and so, yeah, I just, I think that's such a powerful way of thinking about it that, you know, suppression creates depression, but expression creates that emotional resurrection. And, you know, whether you've lost a, a loved one or had a traumatic experience, it seems that that, that has a lot of truth to it. Oh, and, and, and the law, I love your, <clears throat> excuse me, I love your, your uh, reference of the PTSD because uh, when we think of trauma, we do tend to think of um, of uh, soldiers' experiences. We tend to think of first responders. We tend to think of that uh, the the loss of a loved one uh, in in a way that that may not have that kind of trauma uh, um, over trauma dynamic to it can be just as traumatic because of the depth of the of the the relationship. So I think you're absolutely spot on. Let, let, let me springboard from that, uh, uh, Eric, what, what, I, what has come about, a new name has been given for another dynamic in the last handful of years, uh, and, that is, and that is for people who, whose experience has been profound, uh, but, and, and has, has uh, in, in terms of the wounding, but has not been to the level of PTSD. Now, as we know, PTSD, the, the D, post-traumatic stress disorder, the disorder, it, it is a diagnostic, clinical diagnostic disorder. But there are many of us who go through experiences that are damaging, that are wounding, but we're mentally, emotionally healthy. We don't have a diagnostic disorder. And the phrase that, that someone uh, very insightfully came up with is PTSI, post-traumatic stress injury. Hmm. Because even though one is not uh, um, injured to the degree they have a disorder, it doesn't mean they aren't limping. They yeah. are in pain. 
And, uh, and, and, and that's where, back to, back to your point, that's where these creative ways, whether it is, it is in artistic ways, like writing. And by the way, I came across an, an article yesterday. You're talking about the, the military veterans. Came across an article yesterday about people who are incarcerated, that, that there's a new program for them and the, the trauma they are going through via their incarceration, a program about writing and, and uh, that has really taken hold as a way of helping their mental and emotional health. Um, but, but yes, you're exactly right. There are all kinds of parallels. What I'm referring to the depression can also uh, be experienced in a kind of waking up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat with, uh, with whether it's PTSD or PTSI, it is, uh, it is a wound that needs to be healed. And that's what we're talking about today is how, how can we heal those wounds, preferably on the front end, as just after the, the uh, loss happened, but if not on the front end, then certainly later on. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great segue um, because in your book, you talk about the process of healing and what that looks like. And you describe it as accepting what is and also looking to what is becoming. And so I, I'd be curious to hear you describe you know, for our listeners, you know, what does healing look like? You know, what does it look like when you're accepting what is and looking to what is becoming? Let me, thank you. Let me, let me begin with the front end of that. Early on, what, what I looked for was how I was going to intentionally engage this process, engage my mourning, having experienced the grief of the loss of Karen, how I was going to engage my mourning so that I would heal. And what I encourage people on the front end of this is to expect to heal and to look for how they're going to heal, that there's hope out there, but they have to be intentional about doing, they cannot sit passively back and expect it to happen. That, that I, as, as uh, I'm, I'm showing my, my, my age here in using a word that I don't hear much uh, anymore, I do not meander well into, uh, into healthful living. I need to be intentional about it. Uh, let me share an experience I had uh, years and years ago. Uh, Karen gave me a little plaque, and it's been sitting in our kitchen for all these years. And the little plaque read, you are my happily ever after. Mm-hmm. And of course, she gave it to me on, on, I think it was on a Valentine's Day and many years ago. And of course, she was my happily ever after as well. A handful of weeks after Karen died, I was walking through the kitchen and I saw this plaque. And I had seen it only many thousands of times before. But somehow, about three or four weeks after she died, it caught my attention and it stopped me in my tracks. And the question that crossed my mind was, how am I going to be happy now that my happily ever after has died? And I stood there, Eric, for the longest time pondering that question. How am I going to be happy now? And I remember saying to myself, well, I'm about to find out. I was determined 
that my life would go forward, my life would go on. And one of the things that Karen said to me, I was married to a lady. I'm, I'm like a lot of us guys. I married way over my head. <laughs> I, was married to, I was married to a lady who in the last year of her life, uh, she, was, she was loving me wonderfully in countless ways. But one of the ways in the last year of, uh, of her life, she would say to me in different contexts, don't look back, don't look back. And she was coaching me that after she died, she wanted my life to go forward. And again, I'm back to my word, intentionality. I chose to be intentional. And by don't look back, it wasn't don't look back and savor the memories. Of course, we look back for that. But in terms of living in the past is what she was talking about. And we were going to move to move forward. That was her spirit and that was mine. But I have never heard it expressed any more clearly or, or downright eloquently than, again, Karen said it. Uh, Forty years ago, uh, we had a, tra a tragic experience, Karen and I did. We lost a, uh, our two-year-old son, whose name was also Eric, uh, and he died in a car accident 40 years ago. And... Less than a month after Eric died, Karen said, and I remember her word to word. Now, this is a grieving mother. About a month after her son has died, Karen said, with such insight, we're going to make it through this and have fun and enjoy our lives again. Because if we don't, then Eric will not have been the only one who died. Now that's profound. And that is exactly the spirit that she and I shared uh, following Eric's death. And that is the spirit that I have had following Karen's death is that I had an expectation of moving forward. Uh, and through my mourning, through the valley, and coming out one day on the other end. But again, uh, I did not sit passively. I looked look for how I could heal. Now, I have one advantage. This is what I do professionally. I'm a pastoral counselor. This is what I do. And, and one of the reasons that I wrote the book, Eric, is I want everybody to have that advantage. I want everybody to, to, to have the advantage of being able to heal and to, and to move forward. What I have have found is that um, there are no steps, there are no stages of grief, but there are broad phases. And and when when uh, I'm, I'm back to your question about about what what's the landscape of the valley? What's the landscape of this valley of the shadow of death? And the phases are broad. They're they're not steps. They're not stages but there are broad phases. The phases are clusters of emotion that we move through, move into, we work through, we move out of, and then we occasionally revisit. But there are broad phases. Now, I found in my experience, everyone will have their, their unique experience, but I found that in my mourning over, uh, over these last three years, that it began with just a time of pure emotional chaos. 
And those early days, those early weeks, you know, I, I kept body and soul together, but emotionally it was just pure chaos. And then the, the phase that, that that moved into for the next few weeks and even months was one that I'd simply describe as deep grief and mourning, feeling the grief and then expressing it through the mourning at a profound level. But it was, pardon me, it was my first thought in the morning and my last thought in the evening, and it was my frequent thought throughout the day. And then I, I moved into a phase of which I refer to as a season of sorrow in that it was not as as deep it was not quite as heavy it was not quite as intense but it was it was frequent it was it was consistent and then through that season of sorrow i moved into a t months later i moved into a time of 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 emerging transition and the transition was i was beginning to feel the healing coming and then after a few months of that, it was a new chapter in which I discovered uh, purpose and meaning and even joy. And I find it so interesting what, what your, uh, your, your vocation is that, that when I first discovered that, uh, that, uh, that new chapter, that new phase of, uh, the, of, uh, of purpose and meaning, was the day that I woke up and said, you know, I, I had been journaling, of course, throughout the time. I said, you know, I want to sit down and start writing about this. And that was when I realized, oh, yeah, now this is not journaling. This is for someone else. And I knew that I had moved into a new phase. But the, 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 the last thing that let me say about this is that the healing is out there. The healing is real. The healing is possible if some if 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 anyone will do the work that it takes of the morning in order to get there will cry the tears talk the words write the words if they will do the morning that is required the healing is real and when it happens and this is this is the last thought in response to your question thank you for letting me take a while to respond to it but it's such an important question absolutely. Uh, I want to say to your listeners, as, as you move on down the road through the valley, don't feel guilty. Don't feel guilty. Don't feel guilty when you lie. Don't feel guilty when you go out with friends and you have a great time. It does not in any way negate the profound love you had for your, your loved one. What it does is affirm what you have done with the depth of your loss, and that is you have done it successfully. Uh, one of the things that I have frequently thought and sometimes said is, with Karen, I had a great life. Without Karen, I still have the potential of a good life. And now, three years later, I am enjoying that good life. It was such a, uh, and, and, and anyone who has lost someone who is just so precious to them knows exactly what I'm talking about, that it's such a huge emotional hit that we have to remind ourselves later that we still have so much of a good life. But it's such a huge emotional hit. A lot of people think that the quality of their life is over, and it's not. It doesn't have to be. They can mourn the loss and then move forward into the rest of their lives and you take all the elements of that good life that you have. You lost the, uh, a huge one, 
but you take all the elements that you that that remain and you build on it. I have mourned Karen's death, but I am not defined by her death. I'm going to build on the life that remains. Like Alfred Lloyd Tennyson says, though much is taken, much abides. Uh, and, 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 and we build on that life. Oh, let me, that reminds me of something else. I, it's the most wonderful quote. I um, came across the commencement address that J.K. Rowling gave in 2008 to the graduating class at Harvard. Now, now some people know J.K. Rowling was, before she wrote the Harry Potter series, she was destitute. She, she was a single parent not knowing how she was going to provide for herself or her child. She was just one millimeter below homelessness. She was, she technically lived under a roof, but was virtually homeless. And then years later, she was given the commencement address at Harvard, referring to that awful and terrifying era of her life. And this is the way she phrased it. She said, and so rock bottom became the solid foundation on which I have built the rest of my life. Oh, I think that's just absolutely beautiful. And of course, I, I think of the, the psalm, or he is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. And we, we arrive, if we allow ourselves to sink and to sink into the depth of our grief and to feel all that we feel, we arrive, my experience is I arrive at a solid place. And I know that it's a spiritual solid place. I know that that is that rock that the psalmist was talking about. And then back to JK's uh, comment, and then on that solid foundation, I can begin to build the rest of my life. Yeah. Am I making sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, that's that's beautifully said. Um, and I love that you emphasize to not feel guilty um, about moving on um, about continuing your life um, you know I think that is so crucial for people especially in our culture uh, for some reason um, and also in our culture you know people people seem to struggle with how to help others through their grief um, and so you know you mentioned in your book you know you advise people to tell others what you need and how they can help you how they can best love you um, and, you know, obviously talking with friends is really important. Um, but, you know, I think, I think sometimes people are so uncomfortable with grief that they don't know how to listen or they don't know what to say. And they, you know, maybe say some platitudes that are less than helpful or comforting than <laughs> you know, intended to be. Um, and so I guess, you know, what, you know, how can we, help others through their mourning process you know what what would be a good way or a good set of principles for us to follow when we're helping someone who's mourning or trying to be there for someone who's mourning 
another great question. The the uh, the, the let's let's begin with your <laughs> with your thought about the platitudes because you're you're so spot on and and let's begin with the with the uh, um, to 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 agree that we will forget the cliches. Mm. They are where they are well intended, but they don't help. <laughs> yeah, and this is why, or I should say, rarely help. This is why that the platitudes are designed to get people to to it, it always puts a brighter face on it god picks the love list of flowers whether god needs her for himself so something like that it it, it puts a, a lovely face on it and it actually discourages mourning mm -hmm. and uh it discourages people processing and getting in touch with how they feel and working it through is designed them to get them out of their pain, and nothing can get them out of their pain. They have to work it through. So instead of trying to encourage them to get out of the ditch, what I encourage is to get in the ditch with them. Mm -hmm. And there is absolutely nothing that uh, that uh, overrides loving contact. And whatever that loving contact uh, is 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 uh, however that's expressed is going to be. Uh, based on the, the 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 tone of the relationship, the closeness of the relationship, the integrity of the relationship, and and what I have often said uh, uh, to to uh, to people is, if you don't know them well, send them a card. Mm -hmm. If you know them moderately well, take them anything from your local bakery. Mm -hmm. If you know them rather well, go by and see them and give them a hug. And if you and if you know them very well pull up a chair, ask them how they're doing, and listen, and listen, and listen. One's caring presence, there is no substitute for one's caring presence to, to be fully available, touches their hearts. It, it, it may be, and, and, and for many of us, uh, being there, being present may sound it may sound pretty lame. It may sound like, like it's pretty lightweight. No, no. There is nothing more profound than that, than, than, than to be truly present. There is nothing more important uh, than heartfelt empathy. Let me, this is where, this is where the, words, the, the words are important. Mm. Let me distinguish between empathy, sympathy and empathy. If you break the words down, they both come from the, the uh, Latin pathos, which, of course, means suffering. So both have to do with suffering. Uh, sympathy, the sim in sympathy, uh, is to be, it means with. The, uh, so sympathy is to be with someone in their suffering. And that's very important, to be with them in their suffering. But empathy takes it down to a level deeper than that. The M in empathy means in. So the sim means of sympathy is with. The M in empathy is in. So sympathy is to be with someone in their suffering. And empathy is to be in their suffering with them. I've got no, I've got no beef with anybody who wants to be sympathetic but I am a huge advocate of being empathetic, and that is to be in their suffering with them, is to sit with someone, and as they are describing what they're going through, 
as they are describing what it was like to wake up there that morning uh, without their husband there and realize that they will never wake up another day without him in their life, to sit there and to resonate with what they are experiencing, to hear it, not only with the ear, but to hear it with the heart, that's empathy. And, and that kind of resonance is tremendously important. To make that kind of connection, is, 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 it, 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 it literally means the world to people um, to, to do that kind of, of, of listening. I learned this, um, uh, Eric, I learned this when I was in those, uh, those six years that I was a, a pastor, uh, I would be asked to do the funeral service. I learned this it, it, kind of by accident, the importance of this, of this listening thing. Uh, when I would be asked to do the funeral service of someone I didn't know, perhaps a member of my church had grown up in a distant town and their parent, their father perhaps had died and they asked me, he didn't have a pastor. They asked me if I would do the funeral. Well, of course I would. And I didn't know the man. So I would say, now, tomorrow evening, I want you to gather all your siblings and your mom together, and I want to meet with you, and I want you to bring your stories about your dad. I want you to introduce me to your dad who has just died. And we would meet, and for two hours, they would tell me their stories. They would introduce me to their father who had died, and it was just a marvelous experience it was it was a, a vicarious kind of experience as they would really get into the telling of the of these stories, and they were doing it so I could honor him the next day at his at his memorial or his funeral service. Well, the next day after that service, they would come by and you know they would do the attaboys, uh, you Brian, you did a good job, blah blah blah. But then they would get to what was really important. They would say, "Let me tell you how important last night was." to give us the chance to talk about our dad, to have somebody to ask us about him, and then to listen to us in detail, talk about what he was like, who he was, and the memories that we had of his life. That was just transformational, they would say. That's when I learned quite by accident, Eric, the importance of giving someone an ear, to giving someone... Um, the opportunity to talk with someone who is really going to listen to them. Now, I will say that everything I just said, I will say that in response to someone who may have asked me, okay, Ron, what do I say to somebody, <laughs> to my friend who has, has just had this, the loss of this loved one? And I will tell them, Eric, everything I just said. Now, don't, don't worry so much about what you're going to say. Focus in on your presence. Make sure you are empathetically present. And then having said all of that, taken five minutes to say all that, then their response to it is, yeah, yeah, I know, but what do I say? <laughs> <laughs> I feel totally unheard. I respect that because I don't want to make some bonehead remark either. And so this is for people who want to know what to say. This is what I would tell them what to say. I'm so sorry you're having to go through this. I love you and know that I'm here for you. I'm so sorry you're having to go through this. Empathy. I love you. Compassion. Know that I am here for you. Caring. That's what I would say. But always remember 
that what I what you say, what I say, takes a distant back seat to our presence, to the fact that we cared enough to 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 be with them, to be present with them. As as I I've often thought. If you think of that reception following the memorial service in the fellowship hall of the church, if you've been in that receiving line as a member of the family, you don't remember a single word. I promise you don't remember a single word anybody said. What you do remember are the faces and the embraces. You remember that they were there and that they were present. Long answer to your question, Eric. It's a big question. Yeah, it's a big question. Um, you know, and I love that you give that specific advice for what to say, because I was actually, I was going to ask, you know, uh, but what do people say? But because I, I, I think in our culture, you know, we have, we feel this pressure when we're listening to someone to show them that we're listening by responding in some ways. Um, but we often don't know what to say to like the story about someone's dad or their spouse. Um, and so I love, you know, those specific uh, phrases that we can fall back on. Um, and I and I wonder, too, if you could describe a little bit of active listening, um, you know, and some of those strategies that people could use, you know, if they're if they're having an hour long conversation or, you know, a really or even longer or if they're, you know, having a multiple conversations with someone over many months, you know, about their morning, you know, what what are some phrases or some forms of active listening people could use so that they're um, giving people their their presence and their ear and not falling into platitudes or or less helpful things? Yes, uh, think of think of your your role as a student. That you are a student of their life and their life experience in two ways: their life experience before their loved one died. And let, let me in, let me just uh, imagine uh, you're visiting with a a female friend who has lost her husband. Uh, that 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 you are a student of their marriage and of what that marriage was like for her, which she is needing to process. She's wanting so much to talk about the wonderful experiences they had and how they went through the tragedies of their life together and how they, they supported each other, all those, those highs and lows, but they went through them all together. They, they, they need to talk about that. And then a student of what the experience has been like of their grief and their mourning following their husband's death. And to, to never assume, always ask, always ask, uh, phrases were readily come to mind. Well, tell me more about that time that. And w- would, you sh- would you mind sharing with me more what that experience was like this morning? Uh, uh, w- w- one of the things that, that Karen and I would do is we... Uh, our house sits up on a hill, and uh, the 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 uh, front porch faces kind of northwest. And we would stand on the front porch, and we have this beautiful view of the sunset as it, it goes down over the Chattahoochee River. And uh, uh, and we would stand on that front porch, and we will watch the sunset. And we will watch those moments. And and if someone were to ask me, well, what is it like? late afternoon for you 
and I would I would talk, start talking about the sunset and how I would happen to be at the at the front door at just the right time and see and I would call to Karen oh come on come to come and we would go out out there together we'd stand out there for several minutes as the sun would disappear on the horizon uh, just to talk about that experience would be so healing and to ask them about it oh tell me more what that was like how did that start but to 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 become a student of the life that they lived in the marriage and then to become a student of what that that uh, life was like for them without their spouse that facilitates them opening up and talking more and more now let me let me coach anyone who wants to be a good listener never ever say the six most resented words that someone who is mourning uh, can hear and that is I know just how you feel because everyone's experience is unique. And as we are empathetically identifying with them, if we say, I know just how you feel, it means that, that we are making assumptions as to how they feel and that we're no longer truly listening. No, no, we are asking, tell me more about how you feel knowing everyone's experience is unique. There is absolutely nothing like being heard and being understood. And being heard and being understood is transformational. But always, and the, the reason that, that, that I mentioned that about the, the, I know just how you feel, is that the opposite of that is to assume we don't know how they feel. And that's why we become a student. But what what having taking that student posture does is it then invites them out and we are back to what we were talking about. Cry it out, talk it out, write it out. This is the talk it out. We are facilitating them talking out what they need to express. And uh, and I love your in your question, you said in that first conversation and then in all those subsequent conversations, this kind of thing goes on, will go on for a long time for them. And, and let me remind your listeners that the, the word, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan, uh, uh, Eric, of, uh, of knowing the origin of words, because so often the origin of a word stays with the word, and the origin of the word compassion is patai. It means two things. It means to suffer with, which we would assume compassion would begin with there, with that. But it also means to endure. So compassion, its, it, it's root word means to suffer with and to endure. And that's where it takes a long, long time for the healing to happen. And we endure it with them. Uh, and, and so often what people um, will assume simply because they've and I'm not in all being critical is simply because they've never been there. They assume that someone will be over it long before it's possible. But, but uh, again, compassion means both to uh, suffer with and to endure. We hang in there with them and we follow their lead. Yeah. Very well said. Um, yeah. I, I think, you know, especially in churches and faith communities, we do a pretty good job of rallying around someone, you know, in the days and weeks after they have a loss, but then, you know, months 
later and years later we're you know we've kind of moved on and we assume they maybe have moved on and but like you said earlier people can you know the pendulum pendulum can swing back you know people can revisit earlier phases of their of their uh, journey and so it's really helpful i think for us to you know continually be present for people and you know um you know share our try to share in their experience with them um, I'm curious if there are any um, any stories like that or people like that in your experience, uh, either with your child or with your wife, um, and you know people who came alongside you not just for a few days or weeks, but you know years later, or if there are any like really um, just fantastic examples of you know people being there for you. Oh, oh yes, the the. Um... Let me tell you the the one that you can't that, that you brought to mind that happened only a few weeks after our son's death. Uh, that that was just so profound. Um, Karen was I, I was uh, was of course I, I took some time off after he died, but I was back in the counseling office. I was back at the church, and uh, Karen was at home with our other son, and um, who was also in the same accident and was in a body cast for a number of weeks. And uh, so Karen was taking care of him and he was in the den and she was cleaning up the breakfast dishes. She told me about it later. And she was uh, in prayer and in tears. And she was, as she cleaned, as she washed the dishes, she uh, was praying and her prayer was, God, please help me. Please help me. Again, she had just, she had just buried one son and the other son was, badly wounded and was healing. And she said, please help me. Please help me, God. Please help me make it through this. And just as she finished the prayer, the phone rang. And it was one of her dearest friends. And her friend asked her with a, with a tone of, of intent concern would be my description. Friend asked her, Kara, are you all right? And Karen said to her, I am now. <laughs> and I think of that, I think of that, Karen, are you all right? And her response, I am now, is something I have taken with me and something I invite your listeners to take with them. That for them to reach out can be transformative. For them to reach out, in, in, in this case, her friend reaching out was literally the answer to her prayer. And for them to reach out over and over and over again uh, can be absolutely transforming. I had friends uh, who have who, who reached out to me for for months and months and months. I have uh, I have um, they, they, they refer to it as uh, uh, firefighters and builders. There are some people that come swooping in just after, and both are very positive, come swooping in just after the event has happened, and they're the firefighters, and they'll bring the casseroles, they'll take care of things. I remember talking with this one dear lady whose husband had died, and all of these people were coming in. It was two days after he had died, and they were the family was gathering. They were about to have the, the funeral. And there was so much that needed to be done. And one of the things that needed to be done was her grass was getting awfully long out there. 
and she was visiting with her family as they were coming in and she hears a noise in her front yard and one of her neighbors is cutting her grass. <laughs> she said, thank you, Jesus. And, and, uh, those are the firefighters. Those are the ones that come in. And then the builders are the ones that you were talking about a moment ago, who then continue to come in and support and support and support us. Um, and I have had firefighters and I have had builders. One couple, um, uh, she was one of the firefighters. She called me three weeks after Karen died and she said, are you doing anything Thursday afternoon? I said, I'm not. She said, then meet us in front of our condo and we're going to, and, and I met them at 4.30 in front of their condo and she took me down to Fresh Market and we went through this grocery store. She knew I knew nothing about cooking and we went through every section of the grocery store and she mentored me. She tutored me, went back to their apartment and she had the recipe cards Eric already written out about roasted vegetables and, and baked salmon. And she then roasted the vegetables and baked the salmon and taught me how to do it. And the three of us sat there and we had dinner together. She was one of the firefighters. Her husband sent me a different uh, um, YouTube piece of, or, or, or one of the websites, piece of music every morning for months, every morning. It was usually religious oriented. But he would send me uh, one uh, Napster. That's what it was. He would send me a piece of music every morning for months. Another friend of mine continues to send me from the high plains of western Nebraska pictures of a sunrise from Nebraska every morning. He lives out in the country every morning. Those are the builders. We've got the firefighters and the builders. Both are wonderful. Uh, but to continue to touch base with someone months and months, and then, let me wrap it up with this, and then for the next years, on those anniversary dates, send them a card on those anniversary dates. The anniversary date, perhaps, of their wedding, the anniversary date of the date of death, very important. Send them a card. Yeah. Well, Ron, this has been a, a wonderful conversation with incredible advice and, and really life-giving advice and perspective. And so thank you so much. Um, Ron, where can people find your book, The Quiet House, as well as your other work? Sure. They can can get it from Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Um, or or if they would like to to uh, to contact the Dogwood Shop at Peachtree Road United Methodist Church, the Dogwood Shop would be more than would be more than uh, than happy to provide it. And if they would like to, to get an overview of my other books, uh, they can get on the website I have for my books is Ronald J. Greer, R-O-N-A-L-D-J-G-R-E-E-R dot -E -E uh, com is the website for my books. Yeah. And Great. so that, that, that way they can just get an oversight of what they're about. Excellent. Yeah. And I'll put a link to that, uh, all of that in the show notes for this episode as well. And so if, if you will just scroll down, you should see the links to those places too. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Ron, thank you. It, it has been a joy to, 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 to be with you. This has been so meaningful and you, you, uh, you ask such good questions and it's good to, good to meet you and get to know you, Eric. It's, and it's an honor to be on your podcast. Well, it's an honor to have you. Uh, thank you again. I really appreciate it. 
there you have it. Uh, this was such a terrific conversation. So useful, so powerful. Um, and, you know, it's interesting that Ron Greer has, um, he has learned and expressed something that uh, I long have believed just through my own personal experience that um, as painful as it might be, we have to face our mourning, we have to face our grief, um, and we have to, you know, intentionally try to work through, not around, not, you know, suppressing, but working through, engaging with uh, the awful feelings that we might have when we lose someone. Um, and he, you know, is speaking about that, not just from uh, his pastoral counseling expertise and experience, but also as you know, someone who has had um, the worst imaginable losses in his life, and yet he, and so when he talks about the necessity and the power, the emotional resurrection that can occur from engaging one's grief and actively mourning rather than passively hurting, um, he knows what he's talking about, and he he's lived it, and this is really powerful powerful advice and i encourage anyone you know who's uh, struggling with grief or mourning or knows someone struggling with grief or mourning to consider getting to the quiet house one thing i really appreciate about ron too is he doesn't try to sugarcoat things he doesn't um, fall back on those platitudes those you know statements that um we turn to when we just don't know what else to say and we try you know we want to try to bring some comfort and we want to try to ease our own discomfort in the presence of someone in grief and mourning um and we uh you know he doesn't resort to those things and he doesn't uh you know he really focuses on the emotional and relationship aspects of mourning um which i really appreciate too because, you know, sometimes we, we try to rely more on theology, and theology has its place. But when you're in the midst of that kind of mourning, um, you know, your emotions don't necessarily want to hear the more logical, rational theology that some people will often turn to in situations like that. Um, so I really appreciate this conversation with Ron, and I hope you did too. Uh, please share this podcast everywhere. Tell people about it. Talk to people about it. Get the Quiet House. Rate and review us. Five stars. Help other people to find this podcast. Um, and if you have a few minutes to just leave a quick review, that's even more helpful. So thank you so much for listening, and God bless.